Hello, I'm Eamon. I'm Conrad. And I'm John. And we are Mega Film Club. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Film Club. We have got an extra guest and now some weird timey-wimey stuff in production here. Because uh, Conrad and I have got the guest John Caro, who is a lecturer in the Faculty of Creative and um, Cultural Industries at Portsmouth University. Now, John, we've already recorded with you an episode about Action Comic, but because of the way I schedule these things, that's not going to come out for a, um, a month or so after this. So just say hello for us and introduce yourself, John. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Hi, everyone. And, you know, it's a great honor to be here. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on the show. Um, so, yeah, as um, Eamon said, I lecture at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Um, I teach film and video and I do a little tiny, tiny class on um, UK British comics and um, and as part of my kind of uh, uh, midlife crisis, I've um, just kind of got back into 2000 AD, and I've been listening to both of your wonderful podcasts. And um, yeah, and thanks to you guys, my um, bank, bank balance is much less than it used <laughs> to be, and Rebellion is doing pretty well. And uh, uh, yeah, from my bank account. So um, yeah, so just a big 2000 that stereotype pro guana who uh, then gave up in the 90s and then. And here I am now. Conrad and I started the film club mostly because we were going to see comic book movies and having curries. Um, yes. <laughs> but, of course, what we've also then got is we've had listener suggestions for films to cover. And, John, you suggested two films for us. Uh, can we say that they're two films that tell us a little bit about the DNA of 2000 AD and, in particular, Judge Dredd? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for, for Judge Dredd fans out there, these I mean, this would probably be a little bit obvious right now, but um, I thought, what the hell? Go, for, I'll suggest it. You can only say no. And um, <laughs> yeah, so the the two films I suggested were um, Dirty Harry from 1971 and um, Death Race 2000 from 1975. Excellent stuff. So we're going to cover both. We we've all watched these two films recently. Um, John, kick us off. Let's start with the first film, and we'll go chronologically. Tell us about what we're watching or what we've been watching first. Okay, so Dirty Harry, uh, released in 1971, directed by uh, Don Don Siegel, starring Clint Eastwood, who I'm guessing most people know. So, um, <laughs> and uh, he plays the uh, uh, eponymous character. Is that the word? He plays Dirty um, Harry Callahan. So the film is set in San Francisco, early 1970s. There's a sniper on the loose call, uh, calling himself Scorpio, demanding a ransom. And then the case is assigned to the kind of, you know, the, the um, how can we put it, the taciturn and slightly antagonistic Inspector yeah. Dirty, Harry, uh, Dirty Harry Callahan. Yeah, he's, a, he, he's a cop on the edge. A cop know, on the he, edge, yes, definitely he, a cop on the edge. But he gets results, goddamn. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's got his um, rookie partner and um, uh, Chico Gonzalez, so maybe not quite the stereotype and what happens to the partner, but I guess we'll get onto that and spoilers. Mm -hmm. And um, the two of them are assigned to the case, 
we kind of get this big montage that introduces us to why Dirty Harry has the nickname Dirty Harry, robbery, suicide attempts, I guess we'll get on to talking about. And we get this kind of deadly cat and mouse game as um, as he's chasing Scorpio around San Francisco uh, to try and catch him before he kills again and along the way we get like you said cop on the edge it's that whole kind of thing of the cop who is very um i think the way i described it is um yeah you know generally displaying contempt for his long-suffering colleagues and superiors and excellent kind of stuff. so it's interesting film from 1971 um, Conrad, you've lived in San Francisco. Did you? I have, yeah, for many the years. Set in and the streets uh, of San Francisco for this, this I, cop on the edge. I gotta say, for me, part of the fun of this film is just like the sights and sounds of 1971 San Francisco, and looking at all the, you know, it's shot on location. There's all these great places. Um, you know, they go to. There's a big shootout at the uh, at the Mount Davidson Cross, for instance things around like Washington square. Um, but I think honestly, the funniest part to me is that um, they really go out of their way to make San Francisco look as sleazy as possible in this movie. <laughs> like, like every kind of scene where there's a business or something, even if they aren't going in there directly, there's also like an adult bookstore next door or something like that. I think there's a really hilarious part where Harry and Chico are sort of driving through the city on the lookout for Scorpio and they make it look like they're on like the Las Vegas strip. Basically there's just all these bright neon signs for gentlemen's clubs and things like that. And I'm going to tell you that's two blocks of San Francisco (laughs) that they have shot just so that like, like every single business front basically looks like it's its own block. So it's this massive – it looks like it's this massive den of sin that's actually just like – listen, it's, a, it's just a small den of sin, I promise. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I thought I thought that was very funny and just also just generally, yeah, just seeing the uh, the city, you know, in this earlier, you know, pre, um, pre-tech <laughs> gentrification phase is really interesting. And it is, as you say, it's almost like – the sort of uh, the the first of the classic cop on the edge movies mm-hmm. um we get a number of set pieces for dirty harry um in particular i noted in our notes that uh, there's the suicide where he talks down a jumper or sorts of yes that seems to become a recognizable film trope in sort of crocodile dundee and all sorts of films afterwards yeah lethal weapon also- definitely as well and is this the first time we see the sort of phone run um, ransom drop where the kidnapper has uh, Dirty Harry running from public payphone to payphone? Yeah, I think if not, yeah, it must be one of the first, if not the first. And I was thinking for the um, suicide, there's even a little kind of, um, if we're doing dread links already, dread does something similar, doesn't he? When um, he's in Luna 1... There's a, hmm. there's a there's a jumper in Luna One and Dread stops him by being more concerned about the mess he's gonna make <laughs> than than by the guy's you know well being. He's like stop, is it something like stop citizen littering is a crime or something like that he's going he comes up with. So I don't know if that in itself is a little kind of homage to the to the jumper scene. 
let's talk about the sort of foundations of dread. Look, can we say in the 1970s we are in uh, a decade of moral panic about law and order or about um, criminal behaviour, and that Dirty Harry is, if not the first response, it's certainly one of the first responses to that. And as you said, Conrad, this is the cop who breaks mm. all the rules in order to uh, to fight for good, as it were. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I mean, they talk about it actually in, in, in the movie. Um, just the, um, there's a, 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 a scene maybe halfway through where, you know, they, they catch Scorpio and stuff, but they have to let him go scot-free and disallow all the evidence that they found. Because sort of after some big uh, Supreme Court to court Supreme Court decisions and stuff like that in uh, in the states, you know, there's a sense that like oh these these criminals have too many rights these days or something like that. Something that I think would I know in the '80s become a real uh, like pretty steady rhythm of people of uh, superheroes complaining about it in in, in comic book pages and stuff like that. Um, and I think that, yeah, there's this there's this feel. And I think that, again, the 70s where you see this big rise of, yeah, these gritty cop things. I think of like French Connection, other things like that as well in in, in the era. Um, and it's yeah, it's, it's very much an initial response to it, something that that will keep responding to as as time goes by, I think. Um, and, and yeah, generally, man, I, it's it's really funny just looking at Dirty Harry and how much. Its DNA is, you know, you can see it sort of as the 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 tough taciturn cop who is kind of, I guess, monk like almost, or like not really, you know, like doesn't really like a big part of Dirty Harry is that like he doesn't have a wife, he's sort of very doesn't really have a life besides um, being a cop and stuff. That I think you can definitely see elements of dread in. Um, and yeah, and but then, but also, sort of for all other action, all other sort of cop-based action movies as well. I mean, it's one of those like um, I think of it as one of the, like when they have one of those pictures, like in a in, in a kids book talking about evolution, and they have sort of like one common ancestor and a bunch of like trees and paths coming out of it, you know, and like and like dreads one branch, but then you can see like sort of you know uh, like various other action movies coming out of that of that same common um ancestor i guess i i was thinking of uh in that family tree i was thinking of um sylvester stallone's character in demolition man where he says you know mm-hmm. you need to do you need a maniac to catch a maniac or something yeah. like that yeah. uh, this Absolutely. seems a way to be the sort of progenitor of that um while we're talking about famous lines of course everybody remembers dirty harry for do you feel lucky but Conrad, you've sort of alluded to it that there was a big line in here where they have to release Scorpio and Dirty Harry has an angry conversation with the district attorney about the man's rights and says the line, I'm all broken up about that man's rights. John, this seems to be, this seems to be, again, that 70s theme that the cops are going to have to start stepping outside the line in order to bring justice to the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking too, because in the UK we've got the Sweeney, haven't we, doing yeah. a similar a similar kind of a thing. And um, yeah, and I know that's a, a key scene. And maybe that was one thing I thought. Well, maybe uh, I don't know how far we're going to go into this, but what, maybe sometimes I can see where Dread and Dirty Harry 
I can see the connection, but I can also see the divergence because I think that's also where part of um, Harry's speech is he says, then the law's crazy. And I thought, like, Dredd would never say anything like that because, you know, (laughs) Dredd is the law. But but then that in itself, I think, is an interesting bit. I don't know if you were going to go into this, Eamon, but the, the... the, the the Michael Mulcher book where he he talks about that doesn't he and he says the interesting thing about um, Harry is Harry's this kind of um, individual doing his own thing when he doesn't believe in the law anymore and, and and Conrad you were hinting at that all of the you know there's too many rights for these terrible criminals etc cetera, etc cetera. whereas um, in Dred's case. He is part of the system, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I guess that's the connection, isn't it? Is if is if maybe if Harry had his way, you end up with dread. If the system goes the way that right. Har- Harry would like, then then you end up with dread. Yeah, because I think because because dread rarely runs. Like every once in a while, they have they'll they'll be a plot. A, a subplot in dread like that that's but like i always find that those feel very out of place a lot of times where there is like a lawyer who's fencing with dread or something like that you know the idea that like you know there's you know it's so it, it it's such a difference in mega city one because of, you know it's because of the control of the judges you know the idea that evidence is disallowed or that you know these citizens have rights or something like that someone would say that to dread in a non-sarcastic way or something <laughs> like that it just seems out out of the question almost as a result of you know what came before or something what do we think about clint eastwood then as the star of this film and, and before you answer that i'll just mention that from my researches, um, interestingly, a number of actors this role was offered to before Eastwood, and mm. it becomes like Die Hard, another one of those action heroes that was originally offered to Frank Sinatra of all people, mm. um, who I think passed on the role because he he already said he was too old at that stage to play it. But what do we make of Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry, set in? this character, which will go on to several sequels. How many sequels was it, John? I think there's five films in total, yeah, so there's right. another four on after this one. Yeah, I mean, he's... Um, uh, I mean, I get this is a big role for Eastwood, isn't it? Because I think this is him kind of making the transformation to... Because he was mainly known for the for his Western roles, and this is this is the beginning of him kind of making the transformation to becoming a, a contemporary kind of action hero. So I think if um, yeah, so and I think Don Siegel, who I mentioned, directed it. They did. I think this is the third or fourth film they did together. So because because Eastwood's very known for his, uh, it's the beginning of his Warner Brothers partnership because then he kind of almost works exclusively for them pretty much i think from dirty harry onwards but um yeah he's i mean yeah i think he's all i mean he's already in his 40s when he does this and um and uh and i didn't know if you wanted to talk about this aim and, and arguably you know already getting too old for that haircut 
<laughs> but I mean, someone even in the film, I think even in his bot, even in the film, his boss yeah. has a go at him, and that's the whole thing, isn't it? Is he wears he wears bad suits, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't care about his appearance, and he doesn't get his hair cut, and yeah. he's rude, and mean. I mean, it is a very it's a very appealing, I mean, that's the thing. I'm, you know, if I talk about when the first time I see this movie as a teenage boy, you know, a <laughs> lot, a lot of the nuance would have missed me. <laughs> and I would have mm-hmm. wow, he's really cool. And he's this guy I remember from the spaghetti Westerns. So it is almost kind of put in that. Um, and I think in the later Harry films, dirty Harry films, even more so they start to even feel more like a kind of a, you know, an urban Western is put this sort of kind of putting yeah. that, that man with no name figure in the city setting. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's an absolutely iconic role for, for, for Clint Eastwood. I think it's one of the ones that, you know, along with sort of some of those Sergio Leone ones really defines who he is, I think as, as an, as an actor, what you think of when you think of, of that character. And of course, why, um, you know, these early, I know, um, like annuals and stuff in 2000 AD, Clint Eastwood's always the, the, the go-to actor to play Judge Dredd and stuff just the, for that toughness. But yeah, I, I, I also think you're right. He is all, it, it, it's, it's a funny thing that I think this, I've, I know the second Dirty Harry movie, uh, Magnum Force, does have a big like, you know, you're too old for this. You're you're past it and stuff. And that's like 1973. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like the idea that like even then it's like like that's the plot. To think that then you know 20 years later, Clint Eastwood being like in the line of fire where he's way too old. You know, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Just how they keep stringing it out. I guess is is, is interesting. But that's kind of another little. I just suddenly thought of there. You saying that, Conrad. That's another kind of interesting, ah, I mean, this could be a whole podcast on its own, but um, that whole idea of kind of action heroes, masculinity and aging, and that's a, with Dread, that's a huge thing, isn't it? You know, like, mm. how old's Dread now? You know, 80 yeah. or whatever, and um, and so there we go, that kind of idea of having those, those heroes, you know, not just the masculinity, but the kind of aging masculinity. It's an interesting kind of little thread that, I think think Eastwood has done maybe more, slightly more interesting things. I mean, not the later Dirty Harry films, but um, but, uh, In the Line of Fire is kind of an interesting one. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, no, not to... I, I don't want to be down with that. I, I I like that movie a lot, and it's you know whatever brought yeah. John Malkovich to to mainstream. Yeah. I think is yeah. an interesting point. But like, yeah, I mean, and I think that certainly later in his career, also Clint Eastwood, of course, goes on to be really to do a lot of directing and things like mm-hmm. that. And, you know, has definitely a second, even maybe a third act to his career after. Mm-hmm just sort of getting into sort of action tripe, I guess, as mm-hmm. like, I think the, 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 the later Jerry Harry's are, I think it, you know, it's a, it's something that I, I know is it seems like a challenge with, with, with action movies generally, just that, you know, in the end people still have to make money. So these act, you know, people still come out and make them. I'm thinking of like all of the, um, the death wish movies, for instance, right. Oh. Where, 
Charles, yeah. Yeah. Charles Bronson gets in increasingly older and less able to do things as yeah. time goes by. But, you know, we got to pay for these houses. So they keep, you know, yeah. keep making yeah. them and stuff like that. And latterly, we've even got these um, expendable movies, haven't we, that they keep making. So well. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. but yeah. And um, but it, it is an interesting thing, I think. And there is like a. Room for discussion about it of just that how we like seeing I guess the same guy the same dudes come out here and make or they like making movies about these same dudes coming out here even as they're increasingly less able to do so. Yeah. yeah. While we mention his directing, um, I'll note that apparently Clint Eastwood got a directing credit for this for doing directing the Suicide Jumper sequence apparently. Mm. Which, yeah, like, yeah. like the rest of the film, takes place at night because yeah, there's an yeah. awful lot of night shooting in this film. We know we both noted before recording, all three mm. of us, that it is quite dark in many ways. Mm. Yeah, well, it has a very. Um, I, I was going to say, uh, you know, without getting too pretentious, kind of almost sort of a cinema verite sort of documentary feel at times. That mm. that bit especially, you know, and and I I did read a little bit. You know, because cars on the table. I am a bit of a Dirty Harry fan, and um, I know that scene because it it involves the top of a building, and they go up on the um, the fire engine, the cherry picker thing. So the director couldn't really be there, and I think the story goes as he wasn't feeling well. So Eastwood said, "Okay, I'll I'll do. I got this one. I'll do this one." The story goes as it was scheduled to be shot for six nights and Eastwood shot it in one night because that's his other thing, isn't it? Is he's quick and he he, he, he doesn't like, um, I suppose not entirely dissimilar from the work and practices of Roger Corman, who we're going to talk about next, but he, he, <laughs> he, he likes to film quick. He doesn't like to muck about. He doesn't want to spend too much money. Um, and so that kind of handheld, you know, cinema verite documentary feel. Yeah, did we get it? Fine, print. Let's move on. You know, you can kind of see that that coming through. So I think, I think, I, th- I think, Eamon, I did read is that I think that might even be the first time um, Eastwood directed uh, for film. For for he might have done TV stuff. For he might have done the occasional Rawhide episode or something. Right. But I think that's the first first time he directed for the for the big screen. So it is a, a kind of a key a key moment in 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 his career, and it does sort of tie in with that idea you say of everything looking a bit dark and grey. But it suits the film, I guess, doesn't it? That mm. everything's a bit kind of edgy and dark and jittery and grime and as, as conrad said everything looks grimy and dirty he does have um wonderful luxuriant hair that we've mentioned already Clint <laughs> <that mentioned>. um, <laughs> he does look does look wonderful in the film and of course last time we had a guest on the film club when alex frith mentioned the film zulu as the film that all british schoolboys were required <laughs> to watch the other film, of course, that all British schoolboys are required to watch, Conrad, is Where Eagles Dare, where ah, yeah. Clint Eastwood manages two things. Firstly, he has the most wonderful hair, and secondly, he does kill, I think, all the Nazis, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yes, kills everybody in that film. Nice. Um, 
I want to say one more thing about about cops in uh, in 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 1971 American pop culture, if if I may, because I I really noticed something, or I I, I figured something out when I was watching Dirty Harry, which is that um this movie, so D- Dirty Harry comes out in 1971. 1971's also the uh, the first season of the show uh, Columbo with uh, Peter Falk, and to me, I feel like this is a real like. The, to me, that's just the funniest like I don't know duality of what's going on in, in American pop culture at that time. That you, on one hand, you know, in San Francisco, there's this cop that shoots people and sort of you know is um, asks questions yeah, is, later. Yeah, punching it, <laughs> punching his punching his way through, taking guys out. You know, then down south in Los Angeles, there's a cop who, who doesn't even carry a gun and tricks old pe- and, and tricks rich people into confessing to their crimes. You know, and it's very much like you know, this is these are the two cops that people are looking for to see to mm-hmm. see to see movies and shows about in the early seventies. I think it's very cool. interesting. But, but both, um, but oh God, you just made me think of it. But both kind of blue collar cops too, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Both, yeah. Uh, no, they're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's similarities as well, and both are sort of outside the system. Yeah. Both often get accused of uh, harassing their um, their suspects and stuff like that. You know, there's listen. There, there's a duality. Is yeah, what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, if you yeah. want to if you want to get pretentious, there's a yeah. there's a pa- there's a paper for someone in there. Is what I'm trying to yeah. say. You know, well, it's a good comparison. It's good. <laughs> All these seventies cops stepping outside the rules, outside, cops on the edge, and then then. As you say, there's Lieutenant Columbo quietly yeah. taking yeah. down rich white people without a gun. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. He's the best cop. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> okay, so um, Dirty Harry. Well, actually, before I mention, we, before we go back to Dread, what about the rest of the cast? Any other standouts for you in this first Dirty Harry movie? Um, we've got to say Andy Robinson, haven't we, as Scorpio? He's... Um, He's pretty. Uh, I think Don Siegel. Uh, uh, one, one thing: Did you read Eamon? One of the early people they were talking about as Scorpio was um, Audie Murphy. Oh right, yes. Who um, I think unfortunately died um, yes. before before yeah, production exactly, started. Yeah. But um, but Andy Robinson, um, who uh, you know, maybe people. So people like me might know him better from Deep Space Nine now. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, who, um, who I just think, you know, he does make a great villain. Um, it's very interesting, though, how he's depicted, isn't it? With the, he's kind of give. I don't know if they hint that he might be a Viet Vietnam vet. Um, mm-hmm. but he's kind of shown to be, he's got this kind of hippie look, hasn't he? And he's got the peace badge that he wears and, um, yeah, I mean, and I also yeah. think does one of the best, uh, a, f- a friend of mine used to kind of, um, compile what we thought were the best movie screams of, of all time. <laughs> and I think does what, I think it does one of the best movie screams ever when, um, when uh, Harry uh, stabs him at the um, the Mount Davidson um, cross, yeah, cross. I really, yeah, I love his performance. He really like because 
he really seems unhinged, I guess, mm-hmm. just in in how in how his mood changes, like on on, on a dime, how he'll go from like being like I, I think um, later in the movie when he uh, he like kidnaps uh, that yeah. The, yeah. The, the school yeah. bus of kids, yeah. right? Yeah. And you really see him like yeah. t- go from like oh like oh he's just like somehow he's like actually like reasonably charming despite yeah. being yeah. like yeah. being all covered in injuries and stuff like yeah. that he like puts yeah. man just to, at least for a while like put the kids at ease but then he like turns around and like threatens the bus driver and yeah. is like the most evil man on earth you know yeah. and then yeah, sorry. He does that, sorry, he does that thing. Yes, uh, the line "sing" or you'll never see any of your mothers again, or something yes. like that. <laughs> I don't know. I should laugh, but but absolutely that kind of manic. And and actually, what you you know you're saying about Harry being the beginning of a of an era for um, you know that the cops on an edge yeah. sort of genre. Him as the kind of psychopath. He, I mean, how many yeah. cra- crazy psychopaths have we seen in movies you know was he totally. the, temp- the template for so many of them but sorry absolutely i don't know but i just want to say also just stuff like um i think at the cross where he really like you know where he go he'll, he'll go from like incredible confidence to like sniveling cowardice or something you know he's like i'm gonna kill you yeah, yeah. ah you've stabbed me <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. why would you do that i'm an innocent <laughs> yeah. man you know yeah. that sort of stuff is yeah. is really yeah. great it's just like um like you get you know he's not like 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 later psychos, I think, or like, like a Hannibal Lecter, where he's got everything planned out and everything works and stuff. Like his plans go wrong, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets frustrated and stuff, which I think is like, you know, feels realistic and makes it feel like like ground like keeps the movie a little bit more grounded than sort of just having a like I don't know like a you know like like beard stroking like evil evil super evil guy or something like that yeah it, it's almost like um there's a the i was um uh, richard Schickel, who's he writes about eastwood a lot and he talks about him as being um you know, and I guess it's kind of fitting he's on the school bus at the end, that he's almost like a kid. He behaves like a, when you said, when yeah. he doesn't get his way, he's like, Bleh! it's like this yeah. sort of, like, you know, uh, hissy fits he has, you know, like a, like a, you know, child. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that characterization because it really just like, I don't know, it, it feels crazy, I guess, which is really interesting for a, uh, you know, a mad killer or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. And we'll just mention Rennie Santoni plays the first of a series of rather disposable partners for Dirty Harry Callahan. It's not, it's not a good Absolutely. job being Dirty Harry's partner, is it? Mm-hmm. I appreciate that he himself says that in the course of the film. He does actually survive, though. Again, spoiler alert. He does, you know, compared to some of, I think, when we joined the film... He's, he already mm-hmm. says, "Oh, one of my one of my partners in the hospital. One of them's dead." Again, that's another dread connection because even though dread is part of the sort of the law institution, or the he, he dread again is another one who likes to work alone. And what happens to many of dread's colleagues and partners over the years? So mm-hmm. that's, I guess, another little connection. But. Um, but yeah, he is a rare one that actually does does make it to the end of the picture, and um, and then um, I spotted years and years later in Seinfeld. But, um, 
which was my kind of little um oh there he is there's the guy from there's there's the guy from Dirty Harry, but he's an inter- he's kind of in well yeah he's an interesting character and he does again there's another trope isn't it he earns Harry's respect right. I wonder is he one of the I wonder when when did we have that first kind of thing where the two mismatched partners get put together and then you know by the end Harry grudgingly is kind of you know absolutely. Okay, so obviously, John, you picked these films because of they often get mentioned in connection with the origins of Judge Dredd as a comic strip uh, as opposed to a character. How much of characters like One-Eyed Jack, Conrad's favourite, Dredger, and then Judge Dredd can we see in the first Dirty Harry film? Oh, yeah, I mean, um, loads, loads, isn't there? I mean, I think um, I was just looking at the introduction to, to, to One-Eyed Jack. Wagner talks about how, what is it they call it? Cribs. Cribs. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, or dead cribs. And how um, One-Eyed Jack uh, uh, was a direct influence. Uh, Dirty Harry was a direct influence for One-Eyed Jack. Dredger, they even had... Um, uh, I mean, both of them, I believe, have the same gun, don't they? The the most powerful handgun in the world. They mm-hmm. both run around with the with the forty four Magnum. Mm-hmm. Um, I I remember there's even um, I don't know if you guys did you do this in in the, in the action comic. Um, there was even a game they did. You know when they used to do the kind of you know the cutout, mm-hmm. and I think they even yeah. did. It Again. It was like a Magnum Force game, yes. or something like and that. It's yeah, called Magnum Force, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and uh, so, I mean, so I think, and again, and I think you were talking about this in the last film club. Um, you know that whole idea of um, this being the seventies and there being movies that um, that you know, I always like it when Conrad does his little impersonation yeah. of a seventies Cockney kid when uh, when they couldn't get to the cinema to see Dirty Harry or Rollerball or whatever, you know, the reading Dredger or, 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 or One-Eyed Jack was the next best thing, wasn't it? And then I think, and then it's interesting because I, I would love to, you know, get pick um, Wagner's brains on this if he would ever speak about Dread. Because <laughs> um, he talks about then there being a direct line from One-Eyed Jack or lessons learned. I think in mm. the introduction he says, "There's lessons I learned from One Eye Jack that I then took into Dread." And I thought, and he sort of says, "Oh, but that's another story." And I would kind of, it would be nice to, it'd be interesting to hear that story one day. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's you know we've got the cop on the edge, we've got the guy on the outside. He carries a big magnum. His his colleagues don't always do so well out of the partnership. Yeah. Um, he breaks the rules, you know. But yeah, but he gets results. He gets results. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah. So, so I think, yeah, so you could definitely see that line from Harry, One-Eyed Jack, um, Dredger, and then, of course, they that all kind of gets thrown into the mix with Dredd. I, the other thing I was going to say, sorry, um, I, I could be reaching too much, but going back to that Mount Davidson scene, is that a kind of a, an early appearance of boot knife? 
Mm. <laughs> so. Absolutely. He doesn't say it, though. That's the thing. <laughs> if he'd said Switchblade when he, yeah, yeah, when yeah, he stabs yeah. him, that would, have been, that would have been peak. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> to, to, to activate it, yeah. yeah. Conrad, you describe Dread as a heady gumbo who takes uh, oh, absolutely from many a place. Can you see um, Dread here, and and also your favourite Dredger? Well, I mean, I mean, like like John said, I mean, One Eye Jack Dredger. These guys are clearly like you know, again that that little kid, like oh, I want to watch Daddy Harry, but it's rated eighteen. Or sorry, I don't know England. I forget England rating, you know, but like you know, they they can't see it. Their parents won't let them see it because this movie is, of course, very violent. There's boobs in it. There's all kinds of reasons for kids not to watch not to watch Dirty Harry. Same thing with or, or same with like Jaws, and that's and from that we get hooked. Jaw, that sort of thing. It's an obvious, you know, it's such a clear, like, like kids can't watch this. Let's make a, let's rip it off in a comic version and they, and they'll, so they'll be into that and it'll be close. And it really presents itself as that. And yeah. And so like, again, like you said, yeah, Dread's got a lot going on into it because there's sort of, you know, there's definitely, I mean, and, but, but Dirty Harry is such a big part of it, I think, or this like, you know, action stuff this this um 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 cop as us as a solo like you know one who brings the law and who is responsible for that kind of thing you know there's that one there's that one really striking image at the end of dirty harry where you know um Scorpio's in the bus and they drive in that overpass and he just sees um, Clint Eastwood standing there on top of the bridge and it's really striking and just like whoa and like that's such a dread moment too you know where someone thinks they've got it they think they've won everything's going great and then just there's dread right there you know and it's like ah oh, now it's over you know <laughs> like now now i've you know i i i messed around and now I'm about to find out it's in my the consequences of my actions have caught up to me in the form of judge dread <laughs> kicking my butt you know that sort of thing <laughs> and right. yeah and sorry i just want to say like you you've called this the the dna of dread and i think it very much is a is a um a big part of it. Like, you know, there's several alleles or whatever that are very much just, just dirty hairy in the makeup of dread. Also, sorry, there's one last connection to one of the previous films we looked at, because I believe that the final shootout in dirty Harry is where they pick up the gravel in a hell, in a hell drivers. Uh, very good. <laughs> Another gravel pit. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've just got to have a quarry or a gravel pit in these films. Mm. Yeah. It's a good place for a shootout. You know, that in warehouses, yeah. like open spaces, conveyor belts, it's solid, you know. Okay, well, let's uh, transition. We're going to talk a bit more about Dread's DNA, but we also, you mentioned violence and boobs. Conrad, take hey, us... In- at last. <laughs> Conrad, take us into our second um, feature. Oh, into our, I think you mean Film 2, Death Race 2000. 
1975, produced by Roger Corman, directed by Paul Bartel, um, written by Robert Thorne and Charles B. Griffith, based on a short story called The Racer by, is it Ib Melchior or I.B. Melchior? Yeah, Ib, I think. Uh, I think he's Norwegian, did I read? Yeah. Right. Set us up, Conrad. The distant future, the year 2000. <laughs> America's in a weird spot. We're ruled by Mr. President. The American flag's just a big fist. And to keep the public, um, you know, entertained, instead of bread and circuses every year, there's a transcontinental road race um, where five racers in sweet uh, convertibles drive across the country and... When they run, and as they do, if they see any uh, folks out there, when they run them over, they get points for uh, for killing people. They get 20 points by default, then bonuses for women, children, and the elderly. You know, grannies are 70 points, is my understanding. Um, and running this race, there's, is, uh, or most important, is uh, the champion of the race, Frankenstein, played by David Carradine. Um he has a uh, navigator named Eddie Smith, who's mysterious. And then there's a cu- there's a four other racers going against them: uh, Calamity Jane Kelly, Nero the Hero, who dies quickly. Don't have to worry about him. And um, <laughs> M- Matilda the Hun and her navigator Herman the German, who are no good Nazis. And <laughs> and uh, my favorite uh, Sylvester Stallone as Machine Gun Joe. Vid- the, the turbo and uh, his navigator Myra, who in Sylvester Stallone just basically doing doing a uh, Italian or a like a, a a gangster Yosemite Sam the entire film. It's fantastic. Anyway, they right right across the country. Meanwhile, there's a resistance movement trying to end the race, trying to put get in their way, and it's just not you know slapstick murder action basically. <laughs> It's the best way I can say it. Like, like, like wacky races, but people get their heads caved in, basically. Yes. It is very wacky races, I noted, mm. um, but with boobs and violence. Yeah. Um, while we're mentioning boobs and violence, you'll say you mentioned Sylvester Stallone, who apparently did want to appear naked in this film. Um, but they wouldn't let him. And then Simone Griffith and Louisa Moritz, who I think probably had less choice about it. And mm. did, you know, the director said, no, no, this is definitely a topless scene or whatever. Right. Um, Roger Corman, famous for, shall we say, how would we describe it, John? What's his sort of style of filmmaking? I mean, I know he's the producer here. Yeah, I guess we would say, what would we say? B-movies, exploitation mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. Kind of, you know, like, um, you know, get them done quickly. Um, he he, he kind of cut his teeth, didn't he, um, doing um, uh, for AIP pitches. He did the Edgar Allan Poe, um, a few Edgar Allan Poe adaptations with Vincent, Vincent Price. But then I think he got more into producing and distributing, and he was kind of... I, I mean, in, in some ways, I know there's the kind of, yeah, you know... <laughs> stuff where he maybe didn't treat some of his, as you were alluding to there, didn't treat some of his um, stars as, and actors as well as he could have. But it does kind of, I don't know, 
being a bit nostalgic, it harks back to that kind of B-movie way of movie. I guess it's what we used to call, you know, what would have been the director-video kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, the, you know, what do we call it now? Director streaming? That kind of means something different. So, um, yeah, but I would, yeah, kind of B-movies, exploitation movies, shooting fast, shooting quick. But he also, you know, like you said, uh, action, a bit of TNA. But then he did like to sneak in a little bit, you know, like um, Ben Elton, you know, a little bit of politics. He would sort of, you know, sneak in a little bit of social commentary or a little bit of kind of, um, you know, a little message here or there on uh, on sort of stories of the time. Yeah, I, I always think of him as the king of a of a mystery science theater three thousand movies. Yeah, I guess just these, yeah, 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 you know, schlocky, silly, like you know, we made this in a week sort of things yeah. that are just like they're there to keep you entertained and buying popcorn for you know yeah. an hour and a half or or or, or less even, yeah. and then not worry about it too much afterwards i guess yeah he was known for doing stuff like um you know he would go well i think even in death in death race 2000 he was known for going back he would like annoy his directors because he would go back and shoot some extra you know spicy scenes or some gore and he would cut that in he would be filming you know two movies on the same set simultaneously to kind of make the most of the resources and, mm-hmm. and, and the facilities that he had. So it was all about getting stuff. Um, yeah. You know, pumping them out, getting them done quickly, getting them done cheaply, maximum box office. Uh, you know, I guess the trauma films remind me of that a little bit where sometimes the poster and the trailer and the, and the title is more important than the movie to some degree. <laughs> and, um, but he's also known, isn't he? That that's the other thing, isn't it? We probably probably should say is is how well known he is for this kind of unofficial film school, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. there's people like um, uh, Scorsese, Cameron, Joe Dante, um, actors like Jack Nicholson, people like that, all kind of learned their trade Came up through Corman Productions. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a, he's a fascinating, um, fascinating figure, and well, I don't want to jinx him, but still going. Last time I checked, he's he's still out there. So it delivers plenty of explosions, plenty of gore. There's gratuitous nudity. Um, it is very wacky races, <laughs> um, and also with a touch of Wiley e. Coyote in the Roy Roadrunner as well. I noticed thrown. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Um, like literally with, with with the fake tunnel, like where yeah. it's just like they did yeah. this, like a very nice, like no, they aren't going to do that. Like, yeah. oh no, yeah, yeah. I yeah. guess so. When they wheel out the detour sign, and I kind of I really wish it did say bird seed on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, multiple explosions, lots of stuff going on. Uh, you mentioned Conrad, of course, the seventies kids saying we we can't see this film, which of course they couldn't or we couldn't, mm. but it did 
somehow or other seep into the popular culture so that if we would it became like a catchphrase that if you saw somebody crossing a road you would say something like that's that's 100 points so that's 50 points <laughs> yeah. yeah you would you would assign them their points value even though we didn't really know what we were talking about um You've mentioned there's a little bit of politics and social commentary thrown in there as well. How well does that come through amidst all this sort of wacky races, wily coyote stuff? We, well, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I've got a habit of um, of digging too much for these things. <laughs> I kind of thought, well, I don't know. There's a little, you know, we've got the... Uh, well, here we are looking back, but you've kind of got the fake news thing there, haven't you? Yeah. Where 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 there's the rebellion, there's the resistance or the rebellion, and they're kind of being um, that that's being suppressed, isn't it? And and the official narrative, which again amused me, was it's it's not an it's not an internal revolution. It's the French, the French, <laughs> the pesky French. And the um, and the European allies, isn't it? I think they even say who are responsible for our crashed economy and mm-hmm. lousy and lousy telephone system. Somehow <laughs> that, 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 was, yeah. that was the French that did that. So I mean, that to me does feel really um, dread, like a 2018, like where you've got the satire, you've got the humour, and you know, the little kind of political kind of points being snuck in there. So, and I, yeah. yeah. And I think that it honestly, I feel like also dread, like generally just that it, it goes both ways because while we see how the, how like the, uh, the, 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 the media is so like fake and ridiculous. I think also the resistance itself, like the main lady for the resistance is this like, officious old lady is always lecturing people you know and the members are very much like i don't know they're like over enthusiastic kids or something like kind of like whiny and things like that like you know it does sort of make both sides feel kind of silly i guess and she is a reference right conrad this is me looking at my american history Thomasine, Thomasine. Well, she's a, a Thomas Paine was. A yeah, she's supposed to be a missionary. Yeah, a descendant of 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 Thomas Paine, who yeah. wrote you know this uh, pamphlet called Common Sense. That was a big part of, uh, or that was one of the foundational texts of the American Revolution, yeah. I guess. So, although he himself, you know, complicated legacy, not involved in the actual foundation formation of the government. I think I believe like. Um, Got in trouble during the French Revolution when he had, when he headed over there, stuff like that. You know, uh, <laughs> got to be careful in the 1700s. You know, <laughs> cast of the movie. Obviously, we've mentioned Sylvester Stallone. I'm guessing this is the year before Rocky. Is that right, John? I think so. I think uh, they said they spotted him. Uh, Paul Bartel and Corman said they spotted him. There was a movie he did called um lords of flatbush oh right which i think they kind of spotted him in that and i think the story goes is that he was on set you know writing his script for rocky and when people asked him what he was doing next he he said i'm doing this boxing movie and and people would back away slowly and okay (laughs) good luck with that yeah nothing will ever come from that yeah (laughs) 
so he's great fun as Machine uh, Machine Gun Joe. But, uh, of course, Conrad, we've got David Carradine breaking out from his... T- another, like Clint Eastwood, breaking out from mm. television into the big screen. What do you make and of from, him? And, and from a Western setting as well. True. Mm. Yes, Kung Fu was... was mm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> David Carradine's fine as Frankenstein, I guess. Like, he's very stoic... He's angry all the time, though he he still like he doesn't trust. Um, oh, what's your name? Oh, I'm sorry. He oh, he, he he doesn't trust Annie, who is his navigator. Still has sex with her a bunch of times. <laughs> um, and like I guess like you know he's sort of trying to balance the fact that his character is supposed to be very like mysterious and standoffish, but we also want I guess to root for him and for him to be the good guy and stuff. I think does an okay job with it, but it's a weird, it's a weird role. If I'm honest, like just that, like, because he's like the, the character Frankenstein supposed to be this, like, you know, multi time, multi time winner of the race at all these injuries. And so he's got to like be wearing this, like dominant, this, um, like gimp mat makeup, basically. He's always like in black leather with a big mask that just has like some eye holes and like scarred face. He's like presaging Darth Vader as much as anybody else, I I feel like. Um, And then, but like he's got, you know, people have a cultish devotion to him and he's very weird about it. Um, Yeah, I don't know. He does okay. He does fine. I feel like I don't know how, how you could do it. He does as well as you could hope to, I feel like, because I think he did, like he, he's fun in the movie and I liked him. But it's also like it's a weird character. Sometimes I don't know. And the character of Frankenstein, here comes spoilers, everybody. If you've not seen Death Race or the remake, I'm going to sort of give away the gimmick of Frankenstein. Because Frankenstein, as you said, Conrad, is supposed to have survived multiple car crashes multiple reconstructive surgeries he wears the mask and the helmet because he's so hideously scarred underneath it but then of course we get the unmasking and the big surprise is he's just david carradine he's not scarred at all (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and it's all a gimmick in fact he is if i get this correct he is he is one in a series of frankensteins is that right (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. John. Yeah, no, they do imply that, don't they? He says I'm I'm the um latest and the last in the line, doesn't he? Or uh yeah. which again I thought I don't know if this is me reaching but with dread connections I kind of thought, "Oh, there's another because he kind of implies that he was what is it? He was kind of brought up and um and trained to race. Yeah, if it's, not if not cloned, then definitely like sort of built for this purpose, or or like like born for that purpose, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it becomes much clearer in the two thousand and eight remake when they they're looking specifically for somebody to cast in the Frankenstein role, and obviously they uh, they happen to have Jason Statham in their prison, so you know that's convenient. <laughs> if Dirty Harry gives us some of the character traits of Dread. In Death Race 2000, are we getting costume notes and helmet notes mainly? Is that what it is? I think they. I, I, I'm pretty sure. Is it one of the? I'm pretty sure one of the annuals does talk about Death Race 2000 mm-hmm. or the costume, the look of Frankenstein. I guess the black leather, the 
the the helmet shape to some degree. Yeah, I mean, or- I would yeah, I would say that that really early dread, like that, like those sort of like initial Carlos Escara dreads, is pretty similar to Frankenstein. I'd say like it has kind of a rounded thing on the nose and sort of eye things and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, it it, it evolves over time into its into what we know as the dread helmet now. But I think if you look at like sort of those first like you know, 20 progs or so, I feel like the dread, you can, re- you can see the inspiration much more there. And then it sort of, it, it goes in, you know, like the, how, how Iscare and like McMahon draw it uh, initially is different than how I guess end up like sort of McMahon and Ball and sort of figure it out when they're sort of, when, when they solidify dread during the cursed earth, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's definitely those notes. Honestly, like, man, I would say I saw for me, I feel like the dread DNA almost is more like just the setting almost, which feels extremely Mega City one to me, right? Just like these, you know, d- dumb citizens controlled by like this overbearing government and like, you know, things being sort of on their face silly, but everybody buys into it. Um, again, like we talked about, like, like the media being like in, like, like somehow keeping everybody in control, despite the fact things are very threadbare and obvious, you know, (laughs) like, like the, um, there's sort of, we see like three, like, uh, like, like hosts of the, of the race basically. And like one's this. I feel like it's definitely been like one's this very like over the top flamboyant guy with a scarf and like blue glasses or whatever that I feel like has shown up in some sport thing or something like that in, in dread. There's a, like, then there's a lady who wears like, you know, Tammy Faye Baker makeup basically. And, you know, has the catchphrase just talking how everybody's her, her her dear friend, which I thought was really funny. And then, like, sort of, I don't know, the voice of authority, who's this old guy who's like barely awake a lot of the time, and just sort of like droning and barely connected to things and stuff like that, which felt like it could be such a dread like situation, like. If you like, if they were talking, if if you had a dread story where something where like there was some crisis that dread was handling, but the story was told with dread entirely off screen, and you just getting updates about it from this team of a news crew, that would be a perfect dread story. It would be exactly what you would think a, a dread story would be. Yeah, I thought they were absolutely. You know, I could totally see them in dread. You know, and I'm sure there's been sort of sports commentator characters, you know, like you said, mm. the over the top flamboyant one who I think is a real life or was a real life DJ. Yeah, because all of his all of his roles after this are like sort of playing DJ characters in other movies and stuff yeah, like that. I think he pops up in Gremlins. I think he pops up in Once Upon mm. a Time in Hollywood when you hear a DJ, it's him. And, and the other dread thing I thought when you said about the, um, the, uh, the female commentator who always claims to be everyone's best friend, totally out of dread. Her name is Grace Panda. So she's, so, you know, that kind of, you know I'm, she's always pandering to the, mm-hmm. the, you know, which is a complete kind of dread 2000 AD trick. You know, when you give, someone one of those mickey taking names you know which are not 
particularly subtle. But yeah, and also I when in the dread strip, Elvis the killer car turns up, uh, and I thought that Elvis looks more like the cars in Death Race two thousand than Dread's costume looks like Frankenstein. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah, that's another good connection. Like yeah. yourself, um, Conrad, I saw quite a bit of Darth Vader's helmet in Frankenstein's helmet. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, and, and the hideously scarred person who's supposed to be beneath it. Um, okay, it, it's very much a comic book movie um, in a way, you know, much more of a comic book than Dirty Harry. I'm going to mention, John, you introduced me to something I actually had never heard of because there is a comic book that came out in the mid-90s and it involves uh, two notable 2000 AD creators. Yeah, I I did know about this and I'd forgotten about it and I thought I'd got it. And it, I don't know, maybe it's kicking around in my parents' loft or something, but... Um, but, um, but yeah, Pat Mills and, and Kevin O'Neill did... Well, they started a, um, a, a, a death, I think it's called Death Race 2020. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah again, far, <laughs> far in the future. So, though something did happen in 2020, didn't it? But anyway, so, um, and, um, yeah, they did a, a continuation. I think it lasted eight issues. I thought I had some, but anyway. But they didn't, I think Kevin O'Neill did the first two or three, and... Um, and it seems perfect when when you hear it, you know Pat Mills, Kevin O'Neill, Death Race two thousand. You think, yeah, that would be worth a look. So, <laughs> so, um, but I don't, uh, yeah, because again, this is it was Roger Corman. He started his own comics imprint uh, in the nineties. Again, I think it was fairly short lived. So they did eight issues, I believe, of um, Death Race twenty twenty. Never finished it. It's never been collected. And I'm going to keep hunting around in my loft until I, I'm sure I, I, I was sure I bought a couple, but I, I can't find them. And I think um, Tony Skinner co-wrote some too, because oh, because right, okay. um, Pat Mills did some stuff with Tony Skinner. I guess it's yes. sort of it's yeah, they were real closely in the '90s then. Yeah, era. I guess it's kind of toxic era ish sort of 90s i mean it's 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 95 i think so it's yeah it's sort of actually it's a it's the area we're about to enter in in space spinner i guess so you're like um, like uh like it would have been contemporaneous with the dread movie i think which is kind of funny to me um yeah, but I don't know if do, do either of you two know more about it? The mm-hmm. no, just that I you didn't even know about it until we started. Uh, you started sharing some notes for this episode. I don't have uh, those at all in my collection. Yeah, so I guess they. Yeah, I, I I vaguely remembered it when I started looking it up, but um, but I guess they didn't make. I mean, you'd have thought that would have been a bigger story, you know? Um, yeah. Pat Mills, Kevin O'Neill work working for. Um, Roger Corman, but um, yeah, and then those things. Death Race also gets a um, a remake. The remake gets some direct to video sequels. I think was there was there a sequel to the original film as well? Yeah, well, I'm looking at I'm looking at. Oh, sorry, if if, if you actually looked at this, John, talk about it, please. <laughs> no, 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 you go. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I mean. I, I actually saw the uh, the 2008 remake before the um, the original, 
just be, be as, as, as as part of an ongoing joke that my brother and I have that all Jason Satham movies are part of the same continuity. Jason Satham always plays. <laughs> he's the same character in every film, you know? Yes, even the ones where he dies in the end. Like, yes, even whatever, the, that one where it's uh, like a fantasy movie or whatever, <laughs> with dragons and stuff. Yeah, no, it's the same guy. Don't worry about it. Um and um, but I, I I did looking it up. There's there was also yeah Death Race 2050 or whatever, which is a direct sequel to Death Race 2000 with with with, with my boy Manu Bennett as a, as a Frankenstein, the guy from uh, Spartacus. That's good times. Uh, <laughs> have you have you seen that one, Conrad? I haven't I haven't seen uh, that uh, one. That's like that's that that's deep Netflix. I feel yeah. like <laughs> like that's sort of. <laughs> One of the ones where you have to, like, it seems like one of the ones where you have to kind of, you know, you've got to watch three other Roger Corman movies, oh. and then it gets suggested. You, you, you've got to earn it sort of through the algorithm to see it to get it suggested to. Uh, and I think, he, and I think the Jason Statham one has more prequels and sequels. And absolutely, it's it's very much oh. one of those like direct direct to DVD, direct to streaming sort of like. Oh. Like, you know, we've got some MMA guys who need movies to make. Like the 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 Scorpion King had a very similar thing where there's like, you know, there was one with the rock and then like there's just seven or eight like direct to video ones with different people every time. And you've alluded to it already, Conrad, but can I say that the two thousand and eight remake of Death Race is almost exactly what you expect from a Jason Statham movie. The dead wife, <laughs> wrongfully convicted and sent to prison. There's some fights in prison because people decide to pick on Jason Statham, which I don't think you would do. You know, he's Jason Statham. Yeah. It's predictable course- because he's the same guy, Amy. It's the <laughs> same one and the guy in every one. That's why the backstory is the same, because it's the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> And then he gets cast as Frankenstein in their version of Death Race, and there are explosions and cars blow up, and yeah. yeah. Although a navigator seems less necessary in that one because I think they were driving through a track in a prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like in Death Race two thousand, you need a navigator because there's no GPS. Or like like literally, they're like pulling out maps and like trying to like be like take a take a left here because like, it's a you know yeah. it is this sort of cross country race like. Um, um, you know, set up basically. Oh, yeah, you get the really sophisticated seventies computer graphic, don't you? Showing you the the pro their progress <laughs> across Great the states. So, Just yeah. lines drawn yeah, on this yeah, map. Yeah, yeah. Some 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 kid did it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so last time we had listener suggested film club, we considered Hell Drivers, which we thought was a very uh, interesting and you know good film, and we considered Damnation Alley which was more of a popcorn, they made it in two weeks, and frankly, we didn't think it was a very good movie. With Dirty Harry, uh, the original, and the original Death Race 2000, are we in a similar sort of situation with these two movies? What do we think about them, and would we recommend them to 2000 AD fans and our listeners? John, you can kick us off, because they were your idea. <laughs> oh, um... I think I would, yeah. I mean, I think D- Dirty Harry, like I think I, I, I've uh, said, is you know, is a bit of a you know, guilty. Well, not even. Uh, I should just own it, shouldn't I? But yeah. a bit of a, gu- a guilty sort of pleasure of mine. It's just one of those formative movies I saw and had a big impression on me. And I think it's still. 
a really interesting, it, it's still a gripping thriller. You know, it's a really interesting thriller. I think Eastwood is very charismatic and watchable. Um, I guess, uh, you know, and we talked about Andy Robinson as the baddie. You know, I guess this is a little bit of um, Eastwood. Uh, you know, what is it they say about James Bond? This is a very conventional way of looking at the world. But, you know, men want to be him and women want to be with him. With him, him yeah. Uh, yeah uh, you know, to, 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 to reduce it to, uh, to to boring gender stereotypes. But there's a little bit of that with Harry, with Dirty Harry. You think, oh, I wish I could talk to my boss like that. Um <laughs> And oh, I better not say that she might be listening. And um, uh, <laughs> and uh, sorry, she's leaving. So um, and uh, you know the excitement of it. I still, I still think it holds. I really like it. Again, this might be me being a, a, a sad academic, but um, one of my things with Dirty Harry is I do think there are those multiple readings. This is how I can get by it, Conrad. Is I can, <laughs> I can excuse myself by saying, well, actually, the film is critical of Dirty Harry himself if you read it from a particular point of view. And and what I really love about it, I think the trailer said something, the trailer says something like, um, this is a story about two killers. Harry's, mm. the, Harry's the one with the badge. And that, to me, is like, ooh, you know, and then of course at the end he throws the badge away, which I think narratively. So actually, none of those sequels should exist, Damon. Mm. They're they're all a fantasy happening in Scorpio's head as his dead bodies floating away at the end or something. The dying but, fantasy. Um, yeah, yeah, because yeah. um, and I because Don Siegel was politically, I think we can say a little bit more to the left of Eastwood. So you've got a bit of that kind of John Ford, John Wayne comparison, haven't you? With the sort of conflicting. There's quite um, a lot of space to the left of Clinton. Ideologies. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Especially like with, uh, you know, invisible chairs when he's talking to imaginary presidents. But anyway, so, um, Oh my, let's not go there. So, um, but I do, I do think it holds up as a, as a really interested thriller, as Conrad was saying, as a, as a kind of a snapshot of the time. Um, uh, I think it's uh, fascinating for those kind of DNA dread links. And I just think that the fact that it does have those levels of reading, I, I think kind of means you, it kind of holds up to different, you know, to multiple, multiple uh, viewings. And I'm, I'm going on here. So I'll just say, and um, I just think just death race 2000 is just so much fun. You know, it's just silly fun, you know, and um, I, I really, sur- Oh, and you know what? The other thing I love about death race 2000, it's short. <laughs> <laughs> Roger it, doesn't, it, it doesn't wear out its welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Notoriously short. Conrad, what do you make of these two films that we've been watching? Oh man. I mean, <laughs> I, I'll say I'll say last time I was like I um you know he- Hell Drivers was good. Um Dam- Damnation Alley I was very like bleh. like I wasn't <laughs> a fan of that one. Um these ones I love both these movies honestly. Like oh I want to say John um the other uh, 
along what you were saying for the line in the trailer, there's a line really early in Dirty Harry where the mayor says um, the city of San Francisco isn't in the business of paying criminals. That's why we have a police force, which I thought was pretty, pretty solid as well uh, along those lines, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, man, Dirty Harry's really great. I think it's really um, – and I think warts and all, all honestly, like it's a very like it's a very seventies movie, you know. Just you know, it's got sort of you know, it's it's got nudity, it's got violence, and like sort of some regrettable like racial slurs and other things, and uh, and uh, just just like language that you know you wouldn't have in a, in a in a movie these days, I'd say. But I think it's man, it's so important though, like just in terms of like you know, if if you're like me and you like these sort of the action movies that we have, you know, today and, you know, through the, you know, into, from the seventies into the eighties, into the nineties, that's sort of that, the legacy of these, of an American action movie, right? Like, which is, you know, it is weird, I guess, cause it's such a, uh, whatever, <laughs> such a popcorn, like not actually art concept of art, I guess. <laughs> like, you yeah, know, it's there to just have fun, but there definitely is evolutions of them and, and series of them. Dirty Harry is such an important one at the start. And I, like, like I was saying, you can just, you can see so many things that'll go on to be tropes or that'll go on to be like, well, you know, we know that th- it's like this. So we do that, you know, like, you know, the, uh, like, you know, a bit the bank robbery at the start of Dirty Harry, where they sort of like, all right, here's just a episodic action piece to sort of establish what the character can do and things like that. That becomes such a big part of the, you know, like any other action movie, this sort of stuff. Like, and I, I don't know if Dirty Harry invented these, but they're very much an iconic part of that film that I think makes it like important. If, if that's not too over the top, or just like, you know, like worth watching, worth seeing where things come from. Um, Death Race 2000, I thought was a blast. Like, it was just really, like, fun and silly. And like I said, like, just um, to talk about the basis of 2000 AD feels so 2000 AD. Feels so, like, John Wagner specifically, actually. Uh, You know, I know as a writer, he's got a love of, like, uh, sports commentary, for instance. And... Just having these characters, you know, just having these characters be fun, be wacky, like having to talk about it, be over the top and stuff. It feels so like, you know, feels very Judge Dredd, feels very some of my favorite 2080 stories. I'm thinking like, honestly, I got a big like feels like uh, John Smith borrows a lot of it wholesale for that for the story Slaughter Bowl, for instance, which is one of my mid nineties favorites, I guess, Um, you know, uh, they're both like, I mean, I would say again, like, I don't know. I, I, I work now with a lot of young, with, with a lot of folks like in, in in their twenties who don't have a ton of like film history knowledge, I guess, or like, sort of they haven't seen a lot of the, like the old, like older stuff basically, you know? And I think that if I, you know, these are films that I would say, you know, obviously they're 50 year old movies, so they have a different pace and tone than a modern film, I guess. But I think really reward watching. They're fun and they're just and provide both a, a, a history of what things would go on and are, and are great on their own right. Like like Dirty Harry's just really great cat and mouse game and character study of Clint Eastwood. 
And Death Race 2000 is just, it's hilarious. It's just like over the top and silly. If I have one regret, it's that hair, it's that um, Sylvester Stallone doesn't wear more of a hat so that he can throw his hat down and like stamp on it. Because <laughs> again, like I feel like he was the real standout for this film, just being this hilarious, um, you, you, again, Yosemite Sam kind of get, ooh, that Frankenstein. <laughs> that sort of thing really stuck with me, I guess. But yeah, I, I really like both these films. These are great suggestions, and I had a lot of fun watching them. Well, thank you to John for the suggestions. Uh, I will just say sure. that... Yeah, Amy, what do you think? Well, I'm just going to say mm. I pretty much agree with you, Conrad. Um, they're both quite important films to watch. Uh, I'm, you know, I feel a bit strange about Dirty Harry, but I do like your idea that if you've watched Dirty Harry and feel slightly uncomfortable, go and watch the first episode of Columbo, and that will sort of... Oh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> give you the antithesis mm. of the character you know um but, but yeah. i do think i do think Eamon, you can you can uh, how can i put this in some ways i think if you say you're watching dirty harry and it makes you feel uncomfortable i think there's an argument yep. to say that you're supposed to yeah absolutely absolutely you know and, and that's one thing that i think the later certainly the 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 later movies lost that that sort of little bit of, that little bit of nuance yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, like, like, I don't think Dirty Harry is a super, like, heroic character or, mm-hmm. like, you know, he's not happy. He's not, mm-hmm. like, enjoying, you know, he's, it's like, like, I feel like I've seen actually like, like, with sort of, you know, big explosion, like, God, I love what I do or something like that. Dirty Harry's unhappy. He calls yeah. himself Dirty Harry because, like, everybody's like, oh, they're like, because he himself says, like, everybody just gives, like, gives me the worst jobs and stuff like that because yeah. no one, because I'll just, you know, I'll just oh. eat that or whatever. Like, yeah. he, you know, they, I would say he's not like yeah. In this one, at least, he it's a it's a it, he's a complicated character. I'd say like he's not just like hey, here's this guy who you know does this bad stuff, and we should be happy about that, you know. And like, and I would say for all my jokes about um you know the cop on the edge, but he gets results. Dirty Harry doesn't get results in this movie. You know, when he breaks the law and stuff like that, then Scorpio goes free. That's what happens in the movie, you know? And it's only when he, and you know, when he then takes the law further into his hand and kills Scorpio, there's a satisfaction, but that also like, you know, that's when he's like, I'm just not a cop anymore. You know, that's when I've rejected the law, presumably like, you know, he does it as the other, as police sirens are approaching. Like he's probably going to be, you know, again, maybe not actually, but in the, uh, you could, there's a reading of the film where he gets arrested yeah. for doing this, you know, and like, yeah. you know, is, is taken down himself. Yeah. There's you know? a, the Schickle guy, Richard Schickle again. He his yeah. Very similar to what you're saying, Conrad, is he has a kind of a reading that implies the movie you're watching the unraveling of this character when mm-hmm. we meet when we meet him he's not over the death of his wife so then the way he's dealing with grief as he throws himself into work which isn't a particularly healthy coping mix mechanism especially his yeah. work specifically yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, his 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 cat the cat and mouse kind of chase of scorpio becomes more and more personal for mm-hmm. him and he, you know, when he does the famous do you feel lucky at the beginning with the bank robbery, it's all done with a little bit of a smile and a little bit of a kind of a quirky look. By the end of the movie, he's 
spit, spitting that out with yeah. bile. And this is, we were kind of watching a, well, the theory goes is we're kind of watching a broken man here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so, so I think, I think Gaiman, if you say the film makes you uncomfortable, I don't think that's, I it's think there's an, there's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's an argument. Would, can, yeah. There's an argument to say, well, yeah, it's doing what it's meant to do, but maybe, maybe, you know, not everyone picks up. I mean, you know, you can see it a couple of different, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, it's just how you, how you choose to look at it in, in, in some yeah. ways, I think. Yeah. An interesting study in masculinity. And I'll mention Die Hard again, just briefly to say, they sort of did the same with the um, the Bruce Willis character in the sequels, in that he becomes more and more yeah. a superhero, whereas in that film yeah. he's very sort of like vulnerable, flawed, human, yeah. uh, can be injured, yeah. He's the okay. wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time, yeah. Exactly. And he becomes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, sorry, but I, 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 sorry, I know it's an obvious one, but just before we sort of finish this, I thought a little note I just suddenly thought of it it's obvious but maybe it's worth saying death race 2000 2000 mm. the whole because uh, because yeah Corman said his original idea for the movie because as you said the short story is called the racer I, th- I think Corman's idea was to say was to call it death race because you know that's Corman and then but then someone said oh but don't we want to imply this is set in the future and they mm. said, oh, well, let's just throw 2000 on the end then. That will sound futuristic and cool. Totally. And, and there we go, you know, 2000. Fantastic. It all comes back to 2000 AD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, John, thank you for suggesting these two films for the film club. Uh, great picks. If you're listening to this and you've got a film or two that you think you can link to 2000 AD or other British comics, get in touch. Um, send us an email, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you want to come on and talk about them. Uh, we'll do our outros. So, Conrad, Space Spinner can be found at... Spacespinner2000.com or just, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this, you can find Spacespinner2000.com in the same place, I'd imagine. Um, and yeah, you know, we're, we do uh, 2000 AD and uh, Judge Red Magazine recaps. We're pushing our way through the end of 1994, if I can, you know, stop being a lazy jerk, basically. Um, <laughs> we're almost to our 300th episode and to 1995. Very exciting times in uh, 2000 AD, for sure. Big year for Judge Dredd coming up on Space Spinner 2000. <laughs> Absolutely. In, 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 in both directions, you know. <laughs> Being... one, of, one, yeah, one of the stars of Death Race 2000. Did Absolutely. Yeah. You can find all my links at megacitybookclub.com. John, any links you want to share with us? Um, I am. Is Twitter still going? What's it yeah. called now? <laughs> anyway, I am. I I am still on Twitter at um, uh, jorex67, and I have. I am on. What's the other one? Mastodon. I'm trying that. Mastodon. Yeah. I'm on Car- Caro J on that, and I I just joined Facebook this week. So hey. About because <laughs> I just realised there's loads of you 2000 AD guys on there, so I should probably make an effort. So uh, so that's a big one for me. Excellent stuff. Look in the show notes for those links, uh, including to John's Twitter account and Mastodon. And John Caro will return in about three episodes' time with another British comic. Um, Stay tuned for that. 
Looking forward to it. So until next time, I've been Eamon. I'm Conrad. I'm John. And we have been... Mega City Film Club! Thank <laughs> you.